0: We have good news. I don't know how many more weeks we got till that happens, but this is one week closer at least, and one week closer to Passover. I guess we're beginning to think of it at this point. Not that far off now, a little over a month. Let's go back to Matthew five again today. I've thought, and been on this for quite some time, but I felt that going through and spending some time among the things that Christ told us to do as the conditions of the new covenant were a really good thing to be considering as we come up toward Passover, and we're getting closer to it. So last week we finished in verse 16 and come to 17 where he changes Uh, Subjects, Matthew 5.17. Here he says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Of course, Protestants read that verse and stop right there, because they say he fulfilled the law, and therefore it isn't necessary to keep it anymore since he fulfilled it. They don't read the context on down from there, and you have been through quite a bit about the law and the fact that the law is still in effect, so in a sense I'm preaching to the choir if I go into this too much, so maybe we won't spend a lot of time on it, but just a little bit of the basics here. He does say, think not that I am come to destroy the law. He says, don't think that. That's the first part of that sentence, is don't think that. Now, what does destroy mean? Destroy means to get rid of, to demolish, to make of none effect or of no value. If something has value, a physical object, let's say, and you throw it on the floor and break it in pieces then it has no value anymore. You destroyed the value by destroying whatever it was. So he says, I'm not here to destroy the value of the law. I'm not here to demolish it, to get rid of it. Don't think that. I didn't come to destroy it or make it of no value. I came to fulfill it. Now, you can turn the word fulfill around and say, fill full. Fulfill or fill full is essentially the same meaning. He filled it full, he said. Now, if we read on down in the ensuing verses through the rest of this chapter, we see by the context what he meant by that the law was not fully complete in the Old Testament. It had essentially only a physical significance. Now, there were a few who understood that it was more than that, like David, and you can see that throughout the Psalms, how he gave such great respect to the law, and you could see that he understood uh, to a great degree the spirit of the law and the far-reaching uh, effect of the law. So there were some in the Old Testament, a very few, who did understand that the law went beyond just not physically killing someone, let's say. So Christ will bring up several different examples here in the context to show what he meant by fulfill it. He introduced this whole subject of the law by saying I didn't come to get rid of it or destroy its value. I came to fulfill it. Now, that's the part that he needs to further explain. What do you mean by that? What do you mean, fulfill it? You could just say that sentence, those words, and a lot of people would have different ideas of what that meant. And the Protestants, who didn't like the law, immediately assumed that meant Do away with it. Get rid of it. Destroy it. Throw it away. Is that what he meant? Or can we listen to his words on down from there and learn a lot? Now, the Apostle John was with Christ for at least three and a half years of teaching, and then had more contact with him after he rose and ascended back to his father's throne. Let's go back for a moment and understand what the law is. How do you define it? What's it about? First John chapter 3, he starts talking about love and the love that God has bestowed upon us. Well, let's read it. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Here we are, just physical human beings, and we don't have eternity. We don't have but a short time on this earth, and we disappear. He is spirit, uh, the ruler, the creator of the entire universe, And what manner of love is it that he would bestow his concern, his desire, for something as weak and small as we are? Therefore, the world knows us not because it knew him not. So he has given us, as members of the church, and that's whom John is speaking to here, a love that he has not given to others, and others don't understand it because they didn't accept him and the love he brought to the earth, and he will not accept those who follow him and begin to walk in his love. They don't grasp it. They can't get it. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be. So he already calls us sons, even in our human frame. But he expects us to grow up and be transformed and changed into spirit. We've learned that from many scriptures. That when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And it says flesh and blood cannot look at him in his glorified state and live. It's like looking directly at the sun. But we'll be able to look at him then because we'll be on the same Plain, The same spiritual uh, makeup that he is. And every man that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. Now God gives us purity when we repent and are baptized and we are supposed to stay pure and not be spotted by the world, but we don't tend to be that way. We tend to be human as we are human, and act human, and violate the purity that God wants us to have. I know my mother used to talk about me when I was a kid. She wanted me to be clean. She wanted me to keep my clothes clean. And it didn't happen that way. As soon as she sent me out the front door... I was dirty immediately, it seemed. I was on the ground, I was getting dirty right away. Now, she'd sent me out there pretty pure, but it didn't last long. (laughs) And God purifies us, and then it doesn't tend to last long, because we dirty ourselves pretty fast. But, he says, continue purifying yourself." That's the same thing as saying, grow and overcome, change. He says, if we overcome, we'll be with him in his kingdom. And purifying is the same as changing or overcoming, getting rid of that which is impure. Now, he goes on to explain what he's talking about. Now, this is John after Christ had come and had lived and had taught John and had died and gone back to his Father in heaven And everything that was ever going to be done away, if anything, had been done away, okay? Years earlier, because John is writing almost 60 years after Christ had come and gone. So, he's the last apostle standing. Now, here's what he has to say. Whosoever commits sin transgresses the law. So he's linking sin with the law. Now, there's many, many, many places in the New Testament that tell us not to sin, right? I mean, we could go through the concordance and come up with dozens of them that talk about not sinning. We're not supposed to do that. And then he defines what sin is. For sin is the transgression of the law. Transgression means breaking the law uh, doing contrary to the law. That's what sin is. Now, if there is no law, there is no sin. Because sin is a transgression of the law. So when he tells us in the New Testament not to sin, he must be saying, don't break the law. So the law is still very, very much in effect. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. That means we've all broken the law. And have to pay that penalty unless his death covers our sin, so we don't have to die for ourselves. So here in just so many words, he tells us what sin is. You ask a lot of different people on the street, they'll ask, you ask them what sin is, and you'll get a lot of different ideas. To some Protestants, it's dancing, or it's playing cards or it's drinking alcohol, or many, many things they say sin is that have nothing to do with the law of God. It's just that they decided something was evil and foul, so they call it sin. If it isn't breaking the law of God, it isn't sin, because that's what sin is. John knew what he was talking about. Verse 5, And you know that he was manifested to, t- to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. So the reason he came was to take away sin of whom? Those who lived during his time and afterward. Their sin. Whoso abides in him sins not. So if we abide in Christ, we don't sin. We don't live a life of sin. We don't intend to sin. What is sin? He just told us it's a transgression of the law. So if we abide in Christ, then we don't break the law. That means that the law is still in effect. Whosoever sins has not seen him, neither knows him all these Protestants and Catholics and various ones who claim to be Christian claim to know Christ. But they almost invariably say the law is done away with, so there is no sin. They can do what they wish, and they're once saved, always saved. No, it doesn't work that way. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that does righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. And it just said, he doesn't break the law. We go back to 1 John 2, 6, just a few verses back. And it says, he that says he abides in him... Ought himself also so to walk even as he walked. So he didn't break the law. He didn't sin while he was here. And it says that we're to do as he did, walk as he walked, and live as he lived. So he didn't just keep the law so that we wouldn't have to. He kept the law as an example that we should do as he did. I don't know how you could put it any plainer or simpler than that. Such a simple matter. Let's go on down in the context, though, and see if Christ answers his own statement. Think not that I came to destroy it, I came to fulfill it. For truly I say to you, till heaven and earth... Are heaven and earth still here? Yeah. So he says, until this happens, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Filled up full. So he's basing this on the existence of the heavens and the earth. Not one punctuation mark, if there were one in it, not a jot, not a tittle, will pass from the law. Whosoever, therefore, shall break one of these least commandments. Now, that's what he said here is a jot or a tittle, just a, the smallest part of the law. If you break any of it, these will and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. And literally translated, it should probably be, you be called least by those who are in the kingdom of God. Because it shows down here, if you break the law, you won't be there. So it can't be that they're there, breaking the least of them. So, if you break one of the least, you'll be called least by those who are there. But whosoever shall do and teach them, keep the law and teach the law, acknowledge that it should be done, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So, if you teach the law is done away with, or any part of it is done away with, and don't live by it, you'll be called least. Who wants to be called least in most any circumstance? I mean, even when we're choosing up teams uh, for dodgeball or baseball or spelling bee or whatever, I didn't want to be the last one called. I didn't want to be the least. Well, he's here. He's got to be on somebody's team. You know, there were those poor kids... They'd always get the better athletes to choose teams. And there were one or two that always were last. Always. And they were looked upon as the least by the other kids. That was not a good feeling. Now, in any circumstance you're in, you would like to be called great or the best rather than the least. So, let's put it to the law. If you don't keep it, you're the least. If you keep it, you're the greatest, you're the best, you're the most. For I say to you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. You're going to have to be better than the scribes and the Pharisees or you won't be there, period. Now, what was the scribes and Pharisees' big thing? Keeping the law of Moses. That was what they taught, at least. They broke it continually. They didn't walk in it. They didn't follow it. But they taught it, at least, that you should keep the law of Moses. And yet... Christ said, you have to do more than they did, or you won't be there. They, in their self-righteousness, thought that by keeping the law, they could earn salvation. And that's why they went about continually bragging about how they were keeping the law and what good deeds and works of the law they were doing. They even wrote them on their—they made long sleeves with white— so they could write their good deeds out to show everybody. Look what I did. Self-righteous and sickening to the core. (coughs) Do you like to sit and listen to somebody talk about themselves and all the wonderful things they've done and are? That gets pretty boring pretty fast. I've talked to girls or women that go out on a date with some guy. And the whole evening, all he did was talk about himself and his accomplishments and how great he was. And they didn't really maybe want to go out with him again. Because that's all it was about. That's what the Pharisees and Sadducees were like. So you've got to do better than that. Now, does that mean since they gave acknowledgement to the law that you should do away with it so you could do better than them. No, you're actually getting even worse than them if you do away with it. At least they recognized it ought to be. They just didn't follow it, and they got self-righteous thinking that they were doing so wonderfully. So, he tells us, I'm not destroying it, not getting rid of it, and you better not get rid of one jot or one tittle of it, And you better do a better job than the Pharisees and Sadducees. So he's laying out some things here at the beginning of speaking of this subject. And he'll go on now to explain what he means by this. But he wants us to have our attention focused on what he's trying to get across to us. So he lays out the questions, if you will, Then he starts giving the answers to what he means by all this. He says, you have heard. Now, we have heard a lot of things, a lot of different approaches, and they had too. You have heard, and he was speaking here only to his disciples, not to the world. He had gone to a mountain and gotten away from the Multitude And his disciples came to him, and when he sat down, he began to teach them, because they were to be teachers of the church later on. <coughs> so, speaking to them, they have heard. Well, where did they hear it? From the scribes, the Pharisees, the publicans, the Essenes. You've heard that it was said by them of old time, you shall not kill. Now there's where the Pharisees and the Sadducees were. They didn't believe you ought to kill. So they'd heard that. They'd read it in the Old Testament. The scribes and the Pharisees had read it to them in the synagogue. Read the Ten Commandments as they're written in Deuteronomy and Exodus. So they'd heard that. You shall not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. If you killed back then, it was eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And if you murdered, you should be executed. Stoned with stones. Not just for killing, but for other offenses as well. So they'd heard that. Now he's going to tell them something different here. You've heard this. But I say to you, You've heard this, but I'm adding something. I say to you that whosoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment. Without cause is not actually in the Greek. I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment. So, just being angry is a level of the law. What is anger? Anger is an attitude, isn't it? Anger is a state of mind. So he's beginning to talk about, here, immediately, about what is in your mind. You're in danger of the judgment. That's a judgment of men, perhaps. Uh, If you have... Certain attitudes of mind, anger being one of them, that puts you in danger of the judgment. Does that mean eternal judgment, not just the judgment of men? (coughs) I think so. Is God going to have in his kingdom tens of thousands of angry beings? Not a chance. Not a chance. You know what he's been dealing with now for quite some time? Satan the devil and all his demons who are angry, upset, frustrated, and who hate, who don't like, who are angry. Just angry. They didn't get what they wanted, and they're still pouting and angry about it. Is God tired of that? I would think so. And he is very soon going to stop it and shut Satan up for a thousand years before he puts him away entirely forever. He's got a use for him at the end of the millennium for a short time. But he's going to cleanse the universe of anger. Now, he tells us in another place, be you angry but sin not. So there is a time to get angry. God has anger at times, but God does not live in anger. (coughs) He does not want us to live in anger. So there is a time to be angry. It's something someone does, some conditions, that are incorrect and not right. It is not always a sin to get angry. God does not sin, and he does get angry. But what else does he do? He gets over his anger very quickly. It says he is slow to anger, slow to wrath, and he gets over it. Now, what does he tell us to do? He says, you could be angry, but get over it by sundown. There's a limit. You're not to carry it forward. If you have a bad attitude of anger against someone or whatever, you're supposed to get over it. You should get over it by sundown. Now, if it's bad enough, You may not be able to accomplish that, but it's a goal, it is a purpose, it's something you should work at doing, and hopefully in most cases, accomplish. Now he tells us there in Lamentations, he gives us a fresh start every day. Now we're to be like him. We should be able to give people a fresh start every day. Now those people might do the same thing the next day they did yesterday. <laughs> and maybe you get angry all over again. But you're supposed to be controlling your attitude so that you're not angry with your brother. That puts you in danger of the judgment of God because He is one to forgive. He's one to get over His anger. And He wants us to be the same way. So here we're not just talking about the Old Testament law. You could be angry and hate someone day in and day out in the Old Testament as long as you did not kill them. Here he's making it far more binding on us. He's filling that law up and making it more honorable, more important to deal with The mind and the attitude. That's what's important. You know, if you stay angry long enough, you may act on it and kill somebody. No, don't be angry. Angry or anger is not a healthy attitude to be in. Who does it hurt? You, You're the one that's frustrated and angry and mad. Doesn't really hurt the guy you're mad at all that much. Because he can't read your mind. He's not around you. You're not going to be around him anyway because you're angry at him. It hurts you. Because you fester inside. It spoils your having a good day to be angry at somebody. Do you really enjoy being angry? I don't know. Some people are angry nearly all the time. It seems like they must enjoy it. No, you can't really enjoy being in that frame of mind. You you really can't. But that's what he's talking about here, is filling it up, making it fuller, making it more binding and more effective. Killing is not the end of it as he starts to say here in verse 22. So even being angry with your brother puts you in danger of the judgment because God is not going to have an angry universe. If you're going to stay angry, you won't be there. He's had enough of that. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. Now that could be the council of men. When you're putting somebody down and talking negative about them, uh, the judgment of mankind would say you're doing hate speech, maybe. That's become quite prominent today. Hate speech. You're in trouble if you say hateful things about somebody, especially your beloved politicians. Uh, you're in danger, and they're starting to shut down people who speak against them. So, here he's saying, not only being angry with somebody, but taking it to the next level and speaking negatively about them also puts you in danger. It's the next step or the next degree of where anger takes you. You can be angry in your own mind, and what happens when you get that way? Well, most people, most of the time, want to go, share that anger. They want to spread it around because they think that they are righteously in anger and therefore they want somebody else to sympathize with them and maybe get angry with them toward that person. So this is the second degree, let's say, of where anger takes you. It takes you to others and you're not being fair to the others because why should you spread a negative bad attitude about somebody to someone else what good on earth does that do none whatsoever it just makes a small cloud of anger coming out of your head into a huge cloud cloud of anger involving two or three or five or 40 or 10,000 people just makes it worse Now he takes it another step further. Whosoever shall say, you fool, shall be in danger of Gehenna fire. So he starts with just anger. Then he goes to spreading that anger among others. Then he goes to calling somebody utterly worthless. You fool. Utterly worthless is what that means. Now, would God, again, want beings in His kingdom who thought other beings in His kingdom were utterly worthless? No. He loves all of the beings whom He has created. On one level or another, they're all His sons. Converted or unconverted... We all, as flesh and blood human beings, are sons of God on that level. We become a degree closer as sons when we repent and are converted and receive His Holy Spirit. That raises the level of sonship to a closer relationship. You know, in a family, let's say, got ten boys, or five boys and five girls, whatever, and there, parents tend to have favorites. Some they get along better with than others. Some they like better than the others. And the level of communication and uh, being a part of the life of those that you get along with better is easier, and you tend to be closer to them. So we shouldn't put one above the other in love, but it's something that just happens because of personalities and attitudes and so on. Some kids, people say, I love you, but oh, why don't you go stay with Grandma? And others you enjoy getting along with because they're just easier to get along with. Well, now, we should be progressing in that way where we were on the level of just being physical human beings made in the image of God. But he wasn't getting along with us too well because we were going our way and the devil's way, and his way was this way. So we didn't get together much. We didn't communicate much. There wasn't much of a relationship. Now, when we accept his way, and repent of the devils in our way, and start trying to walk his way, the communication goes to a higher level. We're closer as a son as we begin to do what the Father wants us to do. And then, if we succeed in getting that relationship to a certain point, he's going to say, I want you in my kingdom because you're You are beginning to walk my way, and you're doing better at it, and now I want to raise your level to that of spirit, and then we will have absolute, total communication, total love, and no hatred, no animosity, no breakdown in communication, no sin. Everybody will do the right thing all the time. Now, that's beyond your comprehension and mine. I understand that. But that's the way he is headed, and that's what he wants. And he'll have what he wants, or they'll go into Gehenna fire and be burned up and forgotten. He will only have in his kingdom people who think like he thinks and act as he acts. So, with him all along, even in the Old Testament, he indicated that he was slow to anger. Over and over again, he delivered people. Over and over again, he forgave people. Even Hezekiah said, I don't want to die yet. Okay, I'll give you 15 more years. And he did. So God has always been that way. But man wasn't. And he only took physical Israel to a certain level hoping they could at least achieve that, and they didn't. Then he made his spirit available to us and said, Now, since you have my spirit, I'm not only expecting of you what it was in the Old Testament, like the Pharisees and Sadducees taught, I'm expecting you to go above and beyond that by the power of my spirit dwelling in you. So now, let's not talk about killing anymore, or let's talk about not even... Being angry, or putting people down, or saying they're worthless. You're in danger of Gehenna fire if you do that. Now, does that fulfill that law? (laughs) Doesn't do away with it, does it? It makes it far more binding because it has to do with what we think and say, not just what we do. He's explaining himself here. I don't guess any Protestant ever read this part. (laughs) If they did, they read over it and didn't pay any attention. And then he goes on to explain what we ought to do. If we tend to be angry, if we tend to talk people down, if we tend to consider them worthless. Now what do you do? Therefore, verse 23, starts giving us instruction on what to do about this. If you bring your gift to the altar, now he's speaking of the altar of God. Back then they still had the physical temple and they would come in and bring a gift to the altar itself. You know, a dove or a beef or whatever the offering or sacrifice they brought. But we bring our altar in terms of prayer and speaking to God about things. Now, back then, he said, the blood of bull and goats did not satisfy him. That wasn't what it was all about. It was all about attitude. So now, we don't bring the blood of bulls or of goats. We bring ourselves as living sacrifices to talk to him about forgiveness of our sins. Because Christ is the sacrifice whose sacrifice was much greater than bulls and goats would ever be. So we can come and talk to him about our sins, asking forgiveness in the blood of Christ. That's a higher level of communication than they had in the Old Testament by far. And we were not even allowed to go to the Father in prayer until Christ died and was resurrected. The veil of the temple was rent in twain, and that veil was over... The ark in the Old Testament, and nobody could go in there but once a year, and that was the high priest after being totally cleansed from the skin out. Once a year. You and I can go before the Father now through the blood of Christ any time of day or night, 24-7, because He died for us. You can pray the Father any time. So that is the gift that we bring before the altar. He tells us we ought to pray for our enemies. That's a gift of prayer that you can bring before God that is an acceptable sacrifice to Him. Now, if you don't don't get along with your enemies, you don't like your enemies. Your enemies don't like you. That's why they're called enemies. They don't like you a bit. But God tells us to pray for our enemies. That means we don't go to God and say, please kill all my enemies. We go to God and say, help my enemies, not to be my enemies or your enemies, but cause them to be part of the kingdom of God. We should pray that our enemies fulfill the purpose for which they're on this earth. Every human being who's been ever born on this earth is intended by God to be a part of his kingdom. And he's going to save most through the millennium and the great white throne judgment. He's not right now, not even trying. But he will then. And most are going to make it. Because he's a successful God. Successful father. He knows how to raise kids right. But he's turned us over to the devil for the time being who is the present ruler of this world who doesn't know how to raise kids and is trying to destroy them as fast as he can. That's why we have pedophiles in our government. Because they're listening to Satan's wavelength and they want to hurt and destroy children for their own pleasure. Kill them in abortions or abuse them and misuse them when they're 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years of old age. That's Satan's way of thinking. God doesn't like that. He'll take his hand when he puts Satan away, and there won't be any more of that stuff. It's going to stop. So if you bring your gift to the altar, you're there to pray for yourself, you're there to pray for your enemies, And there, remember that your brother has something against you. So you go to God. Why? Because you want your communication and your relationship with God to be good. Right? We all want to get along with God. That's why we go and pray to Him. is so that we might learn to get along and that He might show love and concern for us. And answer our prayers in the way that we would like to have them answered. But he said, Wait a minute. If you come to talk to me and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar. Just put it in abeyance. Leave it sitting there. Don't even follow through with the request until you take care of a problem, if at all possible. Leave your gift there uh, before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. What is God's plan and purpose? It is to have everybody who remains in the universe living together in love and closeness, security, uh, peace of mind. He wants us to all have that. We don't have it here under Satan's system and with our carnal nature. Not at all. Hopefully we're learning it little by little as we try to walk God's way. So it's about relationships, right? It's not about things. This world is about things, material things. That's what people's goals and purposes are, is Things and who has the most things and the best things, and so on. That's not what it's about. It's about getting along with each other. When people say they want peace, they do. They want their mind to be at peace whether anybody else's is or not. Well, God says you need to care about the other person. And if they're not at peace and you know that they have something against you, go get it settled if at all possible because it is an impedance to your relationship with God if there is hate and animosity (coughs) involved between you and others. Now, it isn't always possible to solve it. Then we read just the other, last week or the week before, the verse that said, Live at peace with all men as much as is within you. <laughs> Try with all your heart to live at peace. But there are times when peace won't come. Now David tried to live at peace, but he had enemies that were implacable and they were not about to give up their hatred for David. So he tried, and he went to God, and he prayed for them. Um, Sometimes he killed them. (laughs) He wasn't under the New Testament terms in that sense. It was still legal for the king to chop off heads if the king felt they needed it. So everything in ancient Israel wasn't what it should have been. But you can see David struggling with that sometimes as you read the Psalms and how he's dealing with it and what the attitude of mind ought to be. So do everything you can. Go to your brother. Try to resolve it. Because then you can go to God and put your offering before him in peace. Now, you might have to go to him and say, Father, I read that. Instead said, if somebody has something against me, I'm to go to them and to try to solve it. If I can't solve it, at least I'm now coming before you saying, I did my best, I tried, I talked to them, I reasoned with them, I admitted my wrong if there was any. I tried to make peace. I couldn't do it, but I've done what you said. Now please hear my prayer. We have to make the effort. That's what he's saying. We have to make the effort. Then come and offer your communication, your prayer with God. Do your best to solve it and then ask for his help solving it because you weren't able to. And in some cases, though, you'll be able to. And then you can come and say, Father, we worked it out. It's okay now. Thank you for sending me there to get it fixed. Yeah, we're lazy, and we don't like confrontation, and we'd rather God fix it. Make him quit hating me. Yeah, he don't do that. He doesn't go there. He tells you, you fix it if you can. Now, in the Old Testament, the way you fixed it, you'd go kill him. And then you got stoned to death for that. But you could hate them all you wanted, and they could hate you all they wanted, and there was no penalty for that in the Old Testament. He says, now, I'll show you something else. Now you don't hate them, you're not angry with them, you don't talk about them to others, and you don't call them worthless, and you try go try to fix the problem. Now that's fulfilling that law. It was only halfway there with the physical Thing of don't kill him. But the hate, the attitude of mind was not there. Now it is. So then he adds to that, verse 25. <coughs> Agree with your adversary quickly, while you're still walking with him. Lest at any time the adversary deliver you to the judge, and the judge deliver you to the officer, and you be cast into prison. So your enemy, or your adversary, doesn't like you. And they're going to do everything they can to destroy you. So you're supposed to work with them as best you can to resolve the problem. Because it will only get worse and worse and worse until they're trying to put you in prison and may get the job done. We've had that right here. I've had people accusing me of murder and of all kinds of things, literal murder, which was crazy, with no foundation whatsoever. But you try to resolve it, oh no, I know it's true, and they go to the sheriff and so on, And they've tried to get me in jail several times. Now, I'd like to solve it. I'd like for it to be at peace here. But we've tried various means and methods, and so far that's not been achieved. And God says we'll not be able to achieve it. you read the prophecies, it says that they're going to have to go away. And they're going to be put to the famine and the sword. Every one of them, man, woman, and child. That's his judgment on this situation. And it's going to happen. Because it's gone beyond what we can do in terms of making peace. It's, it's the attitudes are too far the other direction. It won't be resolved here. I've tried various ways, various people. But those attitudes are not changing, and now we got court dates hanging over us and lawsuits and all kinds of stuff, and accused crimes that would put me in jail. So, I've tried, you've tried, and we haven't been able to make peace with these people, so God says, okay, I'll handle it, and he will. He's even said, How? So we do the best we can, and sometimes we can accomplish it, sometimes we can't. Then we go and say, God, this is beyond me, it's too big for me, I can't handle it, I need your help. And then in his way and in his time, he'll take care of that. So if they manage to get you in prison, he says, truly I say to you, you shall by no means come out there, Till so you've paid the uttermost farthing. Whatever they've accused you of and got you convicted of and got you in jail for, you're going to have to pay the penalty, whether it's a monetary thing or a, a length of sentence or whatever. <coughs> Once you go that far and you're there, you're there. So he says, try not to let it go that far. Get it resolved. If you can't, I'll help you if you'll obey me. Now, let's go on to the next subject here. Uh, You've heard, here again, changes the subject. You've heard that it was said by them of old time, you shall not commit adultery. That's one of the Ten Commandments. That's something that Moses taught, wrote down on the stones. Don't do that. One of the commandments. Now, here then, he explains that's the way it was. But, I'm going to add to that. I'm going to fill that up. I'm going to fulfill that. But I say to you, now that was what you heard from old, now I'm telling you this, that whosoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. So he's saying it's what's in your mind and your heart that is now important, not just the physical act. You're not supposed to think it. Don't ever don't let your mind go there. Because that is the same in attitude as doing it. Now that one's one you you have to deal with, just like the hatred. If hatred comes in your mind, anger comes in your mind He says, deal with it by sundown. Get over your anger by sundown. Let's start new, like he gives us a new start every day, he says there in Lamentations. So it's an attitude of mind. Here, he's saying it's not just a physical act of adultery, it's the attitude of mind you have to deal with. Not to lust after someone that is not legal for you. And you struggle with that one because when is it lost? That's a question. Now, you see somebody on the street that's physically attractive, male or female, depending on who you are. They're physically attractive, so your eye might be, be drawn to them. Sometimes if somebody's dog ugly, your eye's drawn to it, too. But it doesn't usually generate lust. It's oof. But if it's somebody that is attractive to you, then you have some choices to make. How long should I appreciate the beauty that is there before it turns into a wrong desire, an illegal desire? And once you've got let it go to illegal desire, you've gone past appreciation and into sin mentally, emotionally. So he says, don't even let it go there. If you don't let it go there in your mind, it won't go there in your body. Because it's got to be here first before it can go there. So he's talking about mind control here. (laughs) Not somebody else controlling your mind, as they're trying to do in our government today. But he says, you control your own mind. Don't let it go where it shouldn't go. Now, is that more difficult than just avoiding physical adultery? Yeah, by magnitudes. The mind, you may not intend for something to happen, and physically speaking, you might keep it from happening while your mind goes there for weeks or months or years, because you're not controlling your mind. So you have to control your own mind. And that's difficult to do, especially in the case where something is very attractive to you. It could be a sexual thing with adultery. It could be robbing a bank because money appeals to you. There are different types of lust, all kinds of different desires that are not right desires. That's why he says there in the last commandment, don't even covet anything that your neighbor's. Don't have the wrong desire to have what your neighbor has in an illegal way. By cheating him, by stealing it, or whatever. Whether it's his car, or his horse, or his wife, or his dog, or his money. Whatever it is, you're not to have an illegal desire for it. A legal desire for what he has is one where you say, I like what he has there. I'm not going to covet it. That is, I'm not going to have a mindset where I'm trying to figure out how I can get it. No. The right desire would be to say, You have something there I really like. That horse, that car, whatever it might be. Can I buy it from you? Can I give you money for it? That way you're not coveting. You're having a legal desire and you go... To obtain it legally. That's not... Just because there's a desire for what your neighbor has doesn't mean it's a sin or that it's covetousness. Covetousness indicates a wrong, immoral desire where you're trying to get something for nothing, essentially. But... To desire what he has is not wrong, as long as it's something that can be legally obtained. Now, if it's his wife you want, he's not going to give her to you, and he's not going to sell her to you, in most cases. So, the desire for her would be a wrong desire, period, because there's no legal way for that to happen. If it's horses or car... There's a legal way to make that happen, and there's nothing wrong with desiring that. So go obtain it legally, and hopefully it's a win-win on both sides. Everybody got what they wanted. You wanted horse, he wanted money. Okay, we got a deal, this works. Nothing sinful about that. But it is inordinate desire, something that is an illegal desire here that he's saying that you control with your mind. Verse 29, And if your right eye offend you, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is profitable for you that one of your members should perish, and not that your whole body should be cast into Gehenna fire. Now, does that mean that if you have wrong desires or lust for something you shouldn't have because of your eyesight... You should gouge your eye out. You know that won't solve the problem? It won't solve the problem. Your mind will still remember what you saw. And the mind could still be thinking the wrong thing about what you saw even though you don't see it anymore. You can close your eyes and not see whatever it is that was wrong for you to see. But your mind's eye can still see it. Now, what he's saying there, if your eye is offending you but because you're looking at something that's illegal and coveting it, get your eyes off it. Turn your eye from it. Shut your eyes away from that. Don't go there anymore. Physically plucking it out won't do any good, but controlling what it looks at and how it looks is possible. So put that away, the sin of the eye, in other words, that has led to uh, covetousness. And if your right hand offend you, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is profitable for you that one of your members should perish, and not that your whole body should be cast into the lake of fire. Now, that would be taking something to an absolute extreme if you plucked your eye physically out or cut your hand off. That obviously is not what he's referring to. He's saying, get rid of the sin. Your hand reaches out to steal, so cut that part off. Don't let that rule you. Pull the hand back. Don't let it rule you. Now, he's making an analogy. It would be better to save the whole body if you had to give up a member. But he doesn't intend us to do that, literally, physically. He wants us to put our hands and our eyes where they ought to be so that they don't lead us into sin. (coughs) It has been said, whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. He allowed that in Exodus 24, uh, if you didn't weren't happy with a wife, you could put her away for most any reason didn 't matter what it was. you could get rid of her just by putting her away. But I say to you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication uh, causes her to commit adultery, and whosoever shall marry her that is divorced commits adultery now. He boils it down here, and he confirms it in Matthew 19, that divorcing for just any reason is not legal anymore. But if there is, the word here is porneia in the Greek, uh, which means not just premarital uh, sex, where you're not a virgin when you get married, and you lied about it and told them you were. Uh, Mr. Armstrong looked at it that way. Uh, that maybe you had some sexual relationships before, and then you came to get married and you told the one you're going to marry, oh no, I've never done that, uh, and you were lying and he found out later, or she found out later, uh, that you were lying, that was legal to put them away for fornication, he said. And he struggled with the meaning of porneia in the Greek and came up with the idea that it was just premarital sex. But that was not the case. Uh, there is an example in the book of Revelation, which is the one that I found, uh, which showed that pornea was more far reaching than that because it talks about Jezebel who committed pornea and she was a married woman. So pornea uncovers premarital sex and postmarital sex with somebody that you're not supposed to have it with. So adultery is still grounds for divorce today, because it breaks the marriage bond. And sometimes that can't be fixed. Sometimes people can forgive and they can live with it, but it ain't happy. So God makes that uh, statement that it's okay if porneia is committed. So, fornication or adultery, premarital or during a marriage, sex with someone else, is grounds for legal divorce. And 1 Corinthians 7 makes it very clear that that person who put the other away for that sin could remarry. Now, Christ divorced Israel because of adultery. It wasn't premarital sin. After he married Israel, she went into sin and political adultery. And he divorced her for that because she was being faithful to her lovers in the world for money, for political gain, whatever, instead of looking to him for the things that he was supposed to provide for her, which he did provide, but she didn't care. She wanted more. So she went after things that were illegal for her to go after. And he divorced her. So, he says, you can't anymore just divorce her. And it didn't allow the women to put the men away back then. It was still sexist. But the man could put the woman away. <clears throat> now, this would go either direction. Whoever's unfaithful gives you legal grounds for divorce if you want to do that. If you want to try to patch it up, uh, okay. Okay. But if it hurt so badly and it's ruined the relationship to the point you don't think you can survive with it, you can legally divorce and remarry only within the church, as 1 Corinthians 7 says, not outside. So he's making this law more binding. Back then, any reason, you get tired of her. Um, She didn't cook things the way you wanted them. For any reason, basically, you can put her away. Not anymore. Now it has to be something truly serious like uh, adultery. So he said, uh, I've tightened this one up too. It's not just uh, physical, I mean, it's not just uh, something because of your whim. Now it has to have a sin and a particular sin as the basis of the dissolution of the marriage. So he's going through subject by subject and sowing what he meant by fulfilling the law and going beyond what the Pharisees and Sadducees did. They only taught the physical application, the letter of the law. That's as far as they went. Now, he's saying you've got to go beyond the letter of the law and keep the spirit of the law, which is in the mind. So he's not doing away with it. He's making it far more binding than it was in the Old Testament, and we have much more to live up to. And we'll be happier as a result if we accomplish that. Well, that's we're out of time today, so let's stop right there. But you can see.